Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the thing we call, things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is Friday, October 9th, 2015, and it is Friday, 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 time for the Monster Show of the Week. As you can hear, I've got most of my voice back after a week of recovery from our uh, October festival, but... Uh, I uh, still have a little bit of strain, so it's a great thing that this is a expert counsel Q&A where the expert counsel does more talking than me. Before we get to your questions for the expert counsel, let's take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by helping to make sure the show's here for you Monday through Friday, five days a week. Sponsor of the day number one today, KnifeKits.com. KnifeKits is a really great company. They've been with us a long time when we vetted them for the sponsorship program. We checked all the blade forums and things like that. And they turned out to be a really great company with just a stellar reputation in the industry. And KnifeKits.com makes it easy for you to learn the skill of knife crafting. It really does for you and maybe for you and your kids to learn that skill together. You can get basic kits that aren't much more complicated than doing, let's say, a, a model car that you would buy when you were a kid and glue together. Uh, you pick out some handle material, some bolsters, and things like that. And if you're not sure what you're doing, they have books and DVDs. They also have great stuff uh, where you can make things out of Kydex and learn that skill as well. America was a, a country that at one time had a hard-line skill set. Uh, people could do things in their own home without calling a guy. Uh, to fix the, you know, whatever it was that wasn't working in your home. Today, it seems like we've lost a lot of those skills. And one way to regain them is to start taking up small hobbies like this and learn these basic skills like fit and finishing, sharpening knives, etc. And hey, if you're a master bladesmith, they have some of the coolest exotic materials you can get your hands on. Check them out today at knifekits.com. Remember, they also do support the MSP or Member Support Brigade with a great discount for you. You can find out about that in the benefits section of your MSB. Sponsor of the day number two today is Backwoods Home Magazine, the easiest company that I've ever had to endorse ever in my entire career. Um, it's really easy to endorse a company when you can look back and say to yourself, I've been this company's customer for over 20 years. That's what Backwoods Home is to me. 1994, I became a subscriber to Backwoods Home. I didn't even start the Survival Podcast till 2008. I was their customer for all of those years. In the early years of the Survival Podcast, a lot of the information that I shared with you, a lot of the teaching that I did came right out of Backwoods Home Magazine. They're an incredible company. And hey, if you haven't been a, a customer that long, consider going back and checking out some of their anthologies. They have anthologies going back to the very first year of public at Backwoods Home. If you want to get a subscription, you're a new subscriber, they have a deal for you in the Member Support Brigade as well. Backwoods Home is an amazing publication. If they weren't, I wouldn't have been their customer this long. It's great today that I can work with people like Dave Duffy and John Silvera, Masada Yub, and Jackie Clay, knowing that you know after reading them all those years, they're now part of what I do. It's just awesome. If you check out Backwoods Home, what you'll find is a publication, sort of kind of like Grit, Sort of kind of like Mother Earth News, with a lot more homesteading stuff in it, and with a libertarian flair. Check out BackwoodsHome.com today, and you'll see why I've been their customer for so very long. 
Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode, the year 1657, because the episode is 1657. Uh, Alex Shrugged has two for us today and some cool bullet points. I'm going to read one and the bullet points for you. I have a humble petition in the Lessons of Liberty, and I also have for segment two, Spanish Christians suddenly become Jews in England. I'm going to read the humble petition one for you. Humble petition in the Lessons of Liberty. Some members of the English Parliament want to make Lord Proctor, Cromwell, and the King, so they have quickly thrown together something called the Humble Petition and Advice. It is a second constitution of England, and it is designed to appeal to Cromwell while limiting his power and reducing the army. England is currently a republic, but most British citizens feel uncomfortable with the new arrangement. The British Civil War did not set out to create a republic, and Oliver Cromwell had no plan for one. As a consequence, everyone's uncertain what to do. The old British institutions still serve a purpose and are maintained while Cromwell figures things out. He rejects the title of king and also rejects the idea of individual voting, because that has always led to disaster in the past. Unfortunately, he's going to run out of time. By next year, he will be dead. His son Richard will take over, but the son is not the father. Richard Cromwell will be deposed. After that, the only thing certain will be chaos. My take by Alex Shrugged. Oliver Cromwell was driven by God's will and watching for signs from the divine. I'm not mocking him. I run my life in a similar manner, but I'm not trying to build a Republican institution from scratch the other that way either. The founding fathers of the United States had a concrete idea on how to build a republic. They benefited from Cromwell's mistakes and from the ideas of John Locke, who was in his mid-twenties when Cromwell was Lord Proctor. Quote, Freedom of men under government is to have a standing rule to live by, common to every one of that society and made by the legislative power erected in it, a liberty to follow my own will in all things where the rule prescribes not, and not to be subject to the inconstant, uncertain, unknown, arbitrary will of another man, as freedom of nature is to be under no other restraint but the law of nature. That actually sounds more like dare I say it, anarchism than a republic if taken to its logical conclusion. And that's my take today. Here's what I'd like to point out to you. So in 1657, a nation fraught with war between nobles and royalty for centuries was given an opportunity to stand as a republic. It had an opportunity. All the people had to do at that point, whether Cromwell wanted it or not, was say, hey, you know what? We like it this way. We like it this way. We want a republic. And the people didn't know what to do. They feared a republic. They wanted a king. They desired a king. They tried to take a guy that didn't want to be a king and make him into a king. Well, sounds crazy, but if you think about it, about 150 years later, right in this country, a man will rise, free colonies into their own nation, find a, found a republic as part of a group of founders, run for president, and be offered the title of king, that man named George Washington. You see, people are afraid of freedom and liberty. And when I say that today, to those of you that cling to the ideas that government can fix our problems in any way, shape, or form, and you say it can't be, it can't be, it can't be, just please consider that maybe, just maybe, there's a connection between you and the people of England who had a chance to rise at least from subject to citizen and chose to remain subjects because they really didn't know what to do. My take by Jack Spierko.
With that, I want to remind you real quick, if you want to support the show and the work we do, join the Member Support Brigade. Become part of the team. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members to learn more. Get a shitload of discounts. There I said it is a shitload of discounts. You can save tons of money with my $50 a year membership. If you're military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty, or prior service, or a first responder like an EMT, paramedic, or firefighter, you qualify for an additional discount, email me with TSPC service discount in the subject line at jack at the survivalpodcast.com and uh, tell me about your service one or two sentences is all I need do this before not after you join I'll get back to you with the discount code everybody else just go to survivalpodcast.com click on members to learn more and please remember if you're like I want to see what this is all about but 50 bucks man what you can join for five bucks a month five bucks a month and if you say this sucks I don't like it You can cancel. I'll tell you what. If you join for five bucks and you really feel like this sucks, it's not worth it, email me and I'll give you a refund. I've never declined a refund within 60 days of payment to the MSB under any circumstances whatsoever. I always give refunds if you ask. Because, well, very few people ask. Anyway, with that, uh, let's get into uh, the main topic of today's show. These are your questions for the Expert Council. I'm still getting quite a few questions to come in as calls. Please, trust me. This new format is working so much better. Email me. Don't call. Email me your questions for the expert council, and uh, I will then kind of clean those questions up, send them to the council members, and we will be splitting again uh, as our new format, our council in half every week. So you're going to hear from all the council, council members. I should say most of the council members. Erica, we didn't get your stuff this week. And everybody's going to miss you. So most of the council members you didn't hear from last week, and one council member you did, Nick Ferguson, I'm bringing in to fill that spot and pinch it for Erica. Uh, so Erica, get me your stuff, and we'll have you on twice in a row in the next two coming shows. Uh, to be fair to Erica, she didn't pike out like somebody else does all the time. Um, she just got kind of behind and emailed me last night. If I'd gotten an email, she would have knocked one out, but I didn't get it because... Guys, I'm buried. I'm busier than a one-legged man in an ass-kicking contest right now, and I'm losing the contest. I've got so much going on, and uh, this Expert Council show actually helps a lot because it does give me a bit of a break on Fridays. So here we go. Let's go ahead and take your first question for an Expert Council member. This one is for Expert Council member Doc Bones. Um, this one comes from... Gee, I don't have a name with it. I wonder why. Anyway... Um, Here's the deal. This one's a little bit controversial, and I don't know what Doc Bones' response is yet. I haven't had time to listen to it, so we'll be listening to it together. Um, he says, Doc Bones, what is the real shtick about cannabis-killing cancer memes I've recently seen a lot of? Does it really treat the cancer, not just the symptoms of the regular treatments? If so, how is it administered? I have thyroid cancer diagnosed in 2012, and I've been through a bunch of treatments, details below, and it just feels like mushrooms and compost. It can't knock off the ones we see, but it keeps, we can knock off the ones we see, but it keeps coming back and showing up elsewhere. Um, I'm going to go ahead and, and let Doc Bones take it from there. Doc Bones, what say you about cannabis curing cancer? Here we go. Hi, this is Joe Alden, MD, also known as Dr. Bones of the survival medicine website doomandbloom.net, where you'll find over 700 articles on medical preparedness for any disaster. Along with my lovely wife, Nurse Amy, we're the authors of the number one Amazon bestseller in safety first aid, disaster relief, and survival skills, the Survival Medicine Handbook. Today's question comes from Michael, a fellow Florida Gator who's undergoing treatment for thyroid cancer. 
Michael wants to know about cannabis sativa, that's marijuana, pot, grass, weed to you, and whether it can kill cancer cells or if it's just useful to treat the symptoms of the disease. Michael, let me first start off by saying I'm so sorry that you're going through this, and I hope that you get better soon. Your question's a good one, and I'm a big proponent of using all the tools in the medical woodshed. Let's start by talking about what it takes for an alternative remedy or treatment to be given credence by the scientific community. Studies relating to effectiveness of a natural remedy must, one, first be published in a scientific journal, two, the study must report on therapeutic outcomes such as effectiveness in reducing tumor size, improvement in survival rate, or measured increase in the quality of life of patients. Lastly, the study must include clinical findings in sufficient detail for a meaningful evaluation to be made, and perhaps even for the study to be reproduced with similar results at another institution. This isn't easy to accomplish, and so you can see that a lot of natural remedies don't meet the criteria to be added as a cure, especially for cancers. Cannabis has been extensively studied by the scientific community for use in cancer patients, and the chemicals dronabinol and nabilone found in marijuana have been proven to have a beneficial effect on nausea and vomiting caused by chemotherapy, going so far as to receiving FDA approval. These chemicals are extracted from the plant and administered orally, not by inhaling cannabis smoke. Interestingly, the effect was actually stronger than those seen with a lot of conventional anti-nausea drugs. Studies of inhaled cannabis have found conflicting results as opposed to the oral versions, that is, no effect in some, and an improvement in nausea and vomiting in others. Another symptom studied was the loss of appetite associated with cancer. It turns out that the munchies people get by smoking pot translates when dronabinol and THC, another active ingredient in marijuana, are given, into an improved appetite and less weight loss in those suffering from cancer. This apparently also works in AIDS patients. Pain management is another issue with cancer sufferers, and oral THC and nabilone were shown in several studies to improve pain relief. Relief from anxiety, insomnia, and sleep deprivation have also been found in studies. When it comes to actually killing the cancer, however, there is no known medical benefit in the use of cannabis, at least so far. I will say that there are several mouse studies that have shown promising results in the treatment of liver, breast, colon, and perhaps even brain cancer. Cannabinoids, the name given to the various chemicals of marijuana, appeared to kill some tumor cells but did not affect normal cells in these studies and may even have increased the effectiveness of chemotherapy treatments. Unfortunately, Michael, there are no studies that I could find so far that indicate that cannabis inhibits or cures cancer of the thyroid gland in lab animals or humans. Having said that, this is a new field, and I expect that many more studies will be performed in the future. Although an alternative remedy, many institutions are taking a more open-minded approach in evaluating cannabis and many other natural substances for the treatment of cancer and many other diseases. I'll report on these as new information becomes available. Michael, the important thing with cancer is to have a positive attitude. It's been shown that those who deal with their illness with a strong can-do attitude live longer and have a better quality of life. Keep your head up and please accept my wishes for the best of health in good times or bad. From a fellow University of Florida grad, I say, you go, Gator.
I'm, I'm really glad that Doc Bones covered that so in depth, and I'm really glad that he kind of, you know, put a caveat at the end there and said, hey, this is an expanding field and we really don't know. Because here's what I'd like to tell you. Doc Bones just told you for a fact that certain constituents of cannabis, a.k.a. marijuana pot reefer, or whatever else you want to call it, um, have known medical use and FDA approval. We can't dispute that. It's fact. It's in text. We can look it up. It's there. Yep. It exists. Well, what if I told you the federal government, out of the other side of its mouth, has said that marijuana has absolutely no medical value whatsoever? Um, I'm reading an article here from Time Magazine from July 11th, 2011. U.S. rules that marijuana has no medical use. What does science say? And science says you're wrong. That's what science says. Science says you're dead ass wrong. Here's what my belief is. My belief is there are a myriad of extremely valuable medical uses of cannabis. Cannabis that's refined into certain constituents, used for specific things. Cannabis that's used as a whole herb, either smoked or into some other method. Cannabis that is grown to do specific things. Uh, there have been children that have ongoing seizures. There's a certain way that cannabis is bred in successive generations where it produces almost no THC, the part that gets you stoned, and it produces other things in abundance, and these children are given small amounts of oil several times a day in a way that can in no way make you high. And after you know, uh, regime after regime after regime of dangerous drugs, these children are cured of their seizures or have... One seizure a month versus 20 or 30 a day. Okay, this is fact. And there is no doubt that our government has made marijuana out to be something that it is not. I'm not saying you should go start carrying around a bag of it like it's a sack of beef jerky and getting toked up seven times a day. I'm not saying that at all. There's a lot of herbs and a lot of uh, medicinals that are good to be used for certain things that it doesn't mean we should use them all the time. Marijuana, I think, is one of those. I also think that compared to something like alcohol, it's relatively harmless, given that there were thousands of cases of death from alcohol poisoning last year, thousands of cases of uh, damage to livers resulting in things like cirrhosis and other cancers, and there's very little of that with the use of marijuana. I'm just saying. So that's my caveat add-on there. And I have to say this. There are certain cancers that at least the anecdotal evidence points to the use of cannabis, whether it's oil or in other uh, forms, have had dramatic effect at the reduction, slowing down, or even cure of cancer. Not all forms. Unfortunately, not. It would be great if just whenever you got cancer, you could go toke one up in Colorado for a couple weeks and come home cured. That would be great. That's not the case. But there are some that there's certain forms of that have shown, at least anecdotally, to be effective. If I get one of those cancers... F the government, I'm going to try it. I mean, I, I think it is asinine that someone could be facing down death, have something that might help them, can't really hurt them, but because the government wants to wage war on it and lie to us about it, that person can be incarcerated for it. It is disgusting. And if you people that are against this think this nation is a nation of liberty, when a person can be jailed for the possession or consumption of a plant, you have lost your flippin' mind. No one's asking you to do it. No one's asking you to pay for it. But you know what? The way government goes is it slowly gets legalized. That'll be the result. You'll pay for it, the very thing you fear most. 
having to sanction it because you're paying for it. How about we just get the government out of the way of things that don't really harm anyone? Now, am I saying no harm comes from the use of marijuana? No. But comparative to the harm done by soap in a bathtub, cannabis is relatively harmless. It's different now than it used to be. Oh, shut up. Oh, shut up. Up. Do you know why it's different than the way it used to be? Because it was made legal for so long, and when they came out with laws that said if you had less than an ounce, there were very small penalties for it, they made it stronger so they could do more with less. So you people in law enforcement that are so worried about it, you created that problem. You created that problem. And all stronger marijuana does is result in people that if they want to use it for getting high have to smoke less to get high, and therefore a lot of the other byproducts of smoking marijuana are taken in less. I'm just saying. That's my take on marijuana by Jack Spear going, no, I don't smoke pot. Haven't for years. Uh, but again, if I ever feel the need medically to do it, F the government and F you for telling me I don't have a right, an effing right to try to save my own life. And anybody that stands in the way of that, of the way of somebody that thinks they can help themselves in a way that doesn't hurt you, you don't deserve the liberties you claim to have. You can tell I get a little pissed about this subject because this nation is, is marketed as land of the free and home of the brave. The brave don't fear liberty. And I'm out on that one. Let's take another one because I need to chill the hell out, don't I? Well, we'll go a totally different way. I have a question up here for uh, Gary Collins on CrossFit. Uh, here's a basic synopsis of that question. What are Gary's thoughts on CrossFit as a training platform for survival fitness? My wife and I started eating a primal diet in March, started training at CrossFit Box in June, and we're feeling great and losing some of our extra caloric reserves from that point on. I will leave it to Gary. This question came in from Michael. Hey, everyone. This is Gary Collins, creator of the Primal Power Method, and we have another great question on CrossFit. And I get this question a lot. And CrossFit has become very popular over the last few years, especially with the CrossFit games and people who are getting into the paleo primal world, uh, primarily paleo because primal CrossFit's not that popular. I'll explain more on that later. But doing CrossFit as the exercise portion of your health routine, you know, I get a lot of questions and this is a question about whether I would recommend it and how is there a way to prevent injuries in CrossFit? And I'll be honest with you, I'm not a big CrossFit fan at all. Um, there are many reasons. I'll get into those as well. But primarily, I'm not a big fan of the creator too. I, I, he's just a complete, uh, whatever. I, you know, you're going to create a fitness craze and you, your big pot belly is sticking out in all the pictures I've ever seen him in and just kind of a clown. And he just rubs me the wrong way. I, I just, he makes, he makes you feel slimy whenever you hear him talk. But with that, uh, that's one of my first rules. If the person pushing it is someone I don't like, I tend to steer clear. But also what I don't agree with CrossFit, two main things is that the powerlifting and Olympic lifting and doing it for high repetitions is actually very dangerous. And powerlifting and Olympic lifting are very specialized lifting techniques and exercise techniques. People spend years and years and years perfecting these lifts. 
CrossFit, the people who are actually the trainers get for level one, it's a weekend class. I mean, the person I've belonged to a couple boxes over the years, I tried it. Um, and the person who was training me and both had no clue about anything in exercise, let alone nutrition. They didn't know anything. And the one girl was in terrible shape who was trying to show me exercise. It was interesting. But with that, you have a, a basically an inexperienced trainer. Then you're doing powerlifting and Olympic lifts. And I, I know all these CrossFit, they're going to lose their mind. And I'm sure I'm going to hear it, whatever. They've drank the Kool-Aid. I'm glad, whatever. But listen to me. I've been doing athletics for almost four decades. I kind of know what I'm talking about. Um, that when you, when you do these exercises and, and the person at, talked about that he liked that they're functional to, total body fitness, it, it's not that. I'll tell you right now, CrossFit is not functional for the most part. Powerlifting, Olympic lifting is not functional lifting. It is powerlifting. That's what it is. It puts tremendous strain on your joints. And there is no, when you look at the, the lifts, they are not functional in the sense that you're not going to use these in nature. And people go, oh, Gary, a deadlift, you had to pick up a heavy object. Yeah, but your hands would not be in that position and you would not pick up the object that way because it puts a ton of pressure on your knees and your back. And then I'm going to hear, oh, if you do the lift correct. No, trust me. Trust me on this one. The human body wasn't engineered to do these lifts. It just wasn't. Um, especially you think of uh, the overhead uh, squat, overhead press, uh, clean and jerk. They call it a thruster because it sounds sexier, but it's a clean and jerk. I have seen more people injured on these lifts uh, through athletics because it's they're very popular in football. And actually, the guys I train who are football players, we don't do any of these. We don't because it's too easily get injured. And actually, a lot of the colleges and professionals, they're getting completely away from these lifts as well because there's just too many injuries. Now, with CrossFit, the problem, too, is 70% of people who participate in it get injured. 30% suffer catastrophic injuries, as in they're done. No more. Uh, so with my experience, I got injured. I know what I'm doing and I had to test it out and I tried, I, I wanted to make sure I gave it a go. And I did all the lifts I could because of my spinal fusion. There were certain things that I just wasn't going to do. Um, but I did most of them and I already knew the form. I hadn't done a lot of these in decades, but you know, it didn't matter with my knowledge when you're doing powerlifting or anything like that for repetitions and you're doing them quickly. That is a disaster waiting to happen because these lifts are primarily um, what makes them work is you have to have real strict form. When you do them for high repetitions, guess what? When you get tired, the first thing to go, form. <laughs> so you're just you're just asking for it. Um, I do like the community aspect of, of CrossFit, though. I do like that. And that is one of the things I love. It promotes, you know, people as groups and getting together and like-minded people. I do like that part of it. Now, what can you do and what would I recommend since I'm not a big fan of it, and especially his wife has never been in athletics. If you've never done athletics and never done anything athletic, period, in your life, you've been pretty sedentary, do not do CrossFit. Don't ever do CrossFit. If you've never done anything, you need to start from the very basics. And I preach walking 
and I have an article or a blog post that I did in depth on the benefits of walking. I walk every night. Walking is a great, great exercise, especially for beginners. Now, with with the tools, one of my favorites, I'm going to give you a quick exercise uh, routine that I do, and I do it very regularly. Anyone can do it. And uh, all you need is a dip bar, pull-up bar. They sell these. I, I bought one for 100 125 bucks. I used in videos years ago. Very simple. And it, it just if you've been to the gym and you see these, it's got a pull-up bar on it and a dip bar. Pull-ups, dips, push-ups, dips or push-ups, or you can intermingle them, air squats. I kid you not. The most effective exercise, full-body exercise routine I've ever done. Another problem I have with CrossFit, very little cardio. They say they do cardio. You don't do cardio. I've seen it. I've been there. You don't do enough of it. It's basically 45 minutes of yammering, stretching, and then 10 to 15 minutes of killing yourself real quick, and that's it. I used to have to work out again after CrossFit because the workout was so short, and it wasn't uh, – it was intense, but it wasn't, wasn't intense long enough for me to get a full workout. Um, so I would recommend that, uh, you know, and save the money. I've seen people pay up to 200 bucks a month to belong to a CrossFit gym. I was paying like 75, 85 and I was getting a discount, um, for being prior law enforcement. I mean, it's stupid money. Save your money. That pull up dip combo, like I said, 100, 125 bucks, get a jump rope, which is 15 bucks. Um, I sell the jump ropes on my website. I've used this jump rope that I sell. I started using it when I was a kid. So I was very familiar with it. Um, you know, just keep it simple, guys. Uh, this, these trends come and go. I know CrossFit's gotten very, very popular, but I see it going the wayside of, you know, uh, Jazzercise or wherever some of that stuff was back in the day. I know those are still around. But you're better off sticking to the basic principles, and I teach those all the time, and it's in my book, Change Your Body, Change Your Life. I have a, ex- or a physical exercise part of it that is very brief and short. Think of the Arnold principles. I know people think, oh my God, bodybuilding. Believe it or not, these guys had it pretty close to right. So I use a lot of those principles to this day. A lot of us who are deep into the training world, who have been training for a long time, we use a lot of these same principles and we believe in them because they work. That is why. Um, Be careful if you're going to do CrossFit. Just make sure you go to a box where you feel comfortable. Make sure you get trainers. A box is the gym. Sorry about that. Um, Make sure you're real comfortable and they have real experienced trainers. I have friends who actually own a CrossFit and they're fantastic. One's a PhD and the other is an MD. They're very smart people and in fantastic shape. Um, So I hope that helps. I know there's a lot of mystery with CrossFit and a lot of people get confused, but I hope that cleared it up. Thanks a lot, guys. And if you have any questions, put in the comment section or hit me up at contact at primalpowermethod.com. Thanks. CrossFit, interesting, isn't it? Here's what I think. I think there's so many ways to be physically active that something that is that intensive on so many points of your body that are the weakest points of your body, i.e. your joints, your tendons, and your ligaments, doing those things is dumb. Now, I know there's some guys out there that are into CrossFit that are really good at it, that have conditioned themselves to a point where they're really good at it, and they are very proud of their achievement. Fine. There's also people that do a lot of crazy daredevil sports that other people would get killed or harmed doing, and they enjoy it. And if that's you, fine. Go on with your bad self and enjoy it and think that you're better than everybody else because you do something that everybody else doesn't do well. 
that's fine. It means you're good at that. It doesn't mean you're good at anything else. That's, that's my view. Now, here is a, a few thoughts that I have. I think if you want to do high repetition weight training, the key is light weights at aerobic pace with weights that are light enough that with simple good form, you will not injure yourself. Ladies, I'm talking three pound, five pound, and, and maybe eight pound dumbbells. Um, with a variety of things and done at a full aerobic pace. And guys, I'm talking, you're going to think I'm being a wuss here, but like 8, 10, 15. Um, the problem with going much heavier, I can pick up and do all these exercises I'm talking about with 25-pound dumbbells. Momentum. It's not about, you know, like if you're lifting weights to develop muscle larger muscle mass or something and you want to go with heavy weights for you know so you're talking like reps of like 12 all the way down to like reps of like three when you're doing intensive training that's fine and heavier weights are fine for that but I'm talking about moving at a pace where you're doing maybe a hundred reps of curls starting out with the lightest and moving to the heaviest and then moving back down to the lightest and the reps are being doing done at a pace of like one two three four five, six, seven, eight, nine, like that. If you start doing that with weights that are at the at the edge of what you can do the exercise with, what happens is form goes to hell, but the other thing is you get momentum injuries. And momentum injuries can happen when, when the body goes into a motion, even without assisted weight, where the body loses control of the motion. So if you were to mimic throwing a baseball hard enough, you'll injure your arm. Now, my other thing is, a, a thing that injures 70% of participants and destroys 30, I wouldn't want to do that either. There's a lot of ways to do this. Um, walking is great. Gary has a great article on walking. Check that out. And then there's things you can do to improve your walking. A good pack that, that distributes the weight right, okay, and carrying weight with you, or wearing a weight vest, not in the beginning, but when the walking becomes too easy, finding hills, walking up and down hills. Very, very valuable. One of the biggest things I missed about Arkansas was the, the about one-and-a-half-mile walk to the top of our mountain behind us. It was a very steep road, um, kind of gravelly. You had to, like, control your feet a lot on um, ascent and descent. And descent, while not as um, aerobically challenging, was very muscularly challenging because there were places where it was steep enough, if you screwed up, you're going sliding down on your ass. And that meant you had to concentrate on using these little tiny parts of muscles in your body that you normally ignore even if you're using them. Not just the muscle itself, but areas of the muscle. And when you can start doing things that challenge you that way, they're great. I, as a military guy, am also uh, really hard on push-ups. I think that they had caused a lot of injuries. Um, if you ever spend time in the military, especially the Army or the Marine Corps, you see so many rotator cuff injuries in young people. I'm talking late teens, early 20s, having to undergo shoulder surgery from repetitive push-ups. You want to do push-ups? Do one push-up. Take one minute to complete the repetition. You want to do squats? Do one squat. Take one minute to complete the repetition. Okay? You want to do sit-ups? Do sit-ups and take one minute to complete the repetition. Do those three exercises three times a day, once in the morning, once in the afternoon, once in the evening. And you'll, you'll be shocked at how hard it is if you've never done it. People that can knock out 50 push-ups and, and not really breathe hard, the first time they try to take one minute to do one push-up. And here, this is the key. That does not mean stay three-quarters down for 80% of the rep. That means to equally, and it takes a while to even figure out how to do it, take your iPhone or your smartphone or any timer and set it on timer, put it in front of you, 
and hit start. Let it let it go for a little bit so you have a starting point, let's say 10 seconds in, so you know you're in a minute 10, right? And follow your rep at each 10 seconds, 10% of the way through. See what it does for you. Do it for a couple weeks and see what it does for you. Um, do one-legged squats that way. One rep. You're not going to hurt yourself with momentum. You're not going to have repetitive injury, a repetitive motion injury, and you will condition the muscles at a higher level because what will happen is you'll start quivering. And when you start quivering, you're going to have to focus on parts of that muscle that you don't even think about. In a way, this is a lot like yoga. Yoga, on that note, what would it look like if CrossFitters took a yoga class? If you want to know, go to the show notes for today uh, and take a look at the links, uh, the additional links toward the bottom of the show notes. And I have a YouTube video for you. I think it's from College Humor on CrossFitters taking a yoga class that kind of makes Gary's point. With that, let's go ahead and take our next question. This one for John Pugliano. This one comes from, who does this come from? It comes from Jesse. And Jesse says, my question for John and you is how can we best prepare our children in this economic and social climate for from a financial sense? I have a daughter and how to best invest for my daughter, um, her future. Uh, Google search today on the subject about the following five ideas. 529 college savings account, prepaid tuition, a brokerage account, dedicated child savings account, and employer's college savings plan. This was also mentioned as an overmet, the, the uniform gift to a minor account. So, John, what say you on this? I'll leave any further details to reveal and discuss to you. And uh, go ahead, John. Hello, Jesse. Thanks for your question about how best to invest for your daughter's future. Let me first start off with the normal disclaimers. I'm not going to be offering any specific tax advice or investment information. And then also, since you didn't mention the age of your daughter or how much money might be involved, I'm also going to be answering your question in general terms and trying to make it not only benefit you, but also be appropriate for the whole TSP audience. And then let me also say that the key point that I want to make, and I'm going to make this up front, and that is that I would encourage you to always keep as much control over this money as possible. And that would mean not putting it in a specific account in your daughter's name or in some type of a separate trust or even something like a directed educational account. What I'm saying is, is that I wouldn't be in any hurry to relinquish the control of the money that you're saving. Let's start with the college savings programs. Well, those plans can be really restrictive. And I don't know what state you're in, and, and they do vary quite a bit from district to district. But, for example, the prepaid tuition programs that I've seen, they can't be used in another state or even within the same state. They can't be used at a different public institution. You know, what if your child doesn't want to go to that school? What if your child doesn't want to go to school at all? Or, again, assuming that your daughter's very young and you're prepaying this when she's one year old, you know, what happens over the next 17 years? What if that school's reputation or its, its credentials get diminished? You don't know what's going to happen in 18 years. 18 years or even a decade, that's a long time out to predict what educational institution is, is you know, specifically right for your child. Now, even with things like 529 programs, now obviously they're not anywhere near as restrictive as prepaid tuition programs, but again, the ones that I'm familiar with, they are much more restrictive than your standard 401k plan, which generally tends to be pretty restrictive. The 529 uh, plans that I many years ago participated in with my kids, I stopped doing because they only allowed one investment change per year. Programs like that are forcing you into a buy and hold strategy, which may not be appropriate for you. See, I think what these plans do is they force you to give up too much freedom and too much flexibility 
for some very small and, in many cases, inconsequential tax breaks. Let's say that the value on that plan is $40,000. Let's say that over the last five years, you've contributed $5,000 each year, so the principal that you've put on in there would be $25,000, and that it's grown nicely and you've made another $15,000 in profit. So now it has $40,000 in it. Now let's also say that you're worried about a correction in the market, but because your plan only allows you to uh, make one rebalancing choice a year, you're stuck in whatever type of asset allocation that you made six or seven months ago when the economy looked better than it does today. If you had that $40,000 in just a regular brokerage account that you controlled yourself, even if it was a taxable account, you could sell out of the stock market at any time you chose and put that $40,000 into a very safe money market fund. And you would have to pay a combination of maybe short and long-term capital gain taxes on that $15,000 return. But would you rather pay 15 or 20% taxes on a $15,000 capital gain? Or would you rather have the risk of the market dropping 15 or 20% and having your overall account value of $40,000 diminished by 15 or 20% because of the market correction? I'd rather pay the government 20% on a $15,000 capital gain than take a 20% loss on my $40,000 account. You give up that option when you go into these restrictive 529 college savings plans. Now, something else most people don't know is that a parent can take distributions from their traditional IRA savings account and use that to pay for their children's higher educational expenses Check this with your CPA, but the IRS website states that you are not subject to that 10% penalty on an early distribution if it's used for your child's education. So personally, before I would put money in a 529 program, I would make sure that my spouse and I were maxing out our traditional IRAs. And then as far as people that set up restrictive trusts, or in particular people that would set up accounts for uh, like a uniform gift of minors to get around a gift tax, I think that for most middle class people, that's just not really required. For example, in 2015, you can gift your child or really gift any individual up to $14,000 without any tax consequences. And that would be over and above things like higher education or assistance with medical bills, you know, things of that nature. And that $14,000 gift is peer-to-peer. So, for example, let's say your daughter's 20 years old and she wants to buy a home. Well, you could gift her $14,000 and your wife could gift her $14,000. So in any given year, you could pass $28,000 of wealth onto her without any tax consequence. If she was married, you could do the same thing to your son-in-law. And so as a couple, you could have a wealth distribution gift from you and your wife to your daughter and her husband of $58,000, and you could do that every year. And then, of course, when your daughter has children, combined, you and your wife could gift each of those grandchildren $28,000 a year. And so, again, for most middle-class families, I think that setting up a uniform gift for minor account or putting in these restrictive trusts, you know, just to get around income taxes, I really think they're overkill. The other reason is, is that same $14,000 gifting that you can give or or $28,000 as a couple, that doesn't have to be actual cash, but that can be cash value of, of real estate or of a business. Again, for example, let's assume that your daughter is a young adult. She's 28 years old. 
you want to help her out. And all these years, you know, you've been saving, you've been building up your own retirement account, you've been investing in real estate and your own small business and, you know, in your retirement accounts and things. You kept all that money in your own name where you maintain control of it, you and your spouse. And now your daughter is a mature young woman. She's 20 years old. She wants to start a business of her own or she wants to buy a business and you want to assist her with that or she wants to buy a home. So you could actually go out and make that purchase with the wealth that you've accumulated over these years. And then rather than giving that all to your daughter at one time when she may make a foolish decision or she may be lacking in maturity or just not have enough worldly experience to be accountable for a large sum of money or a large gift at one time, you could keep the ownership of that property or the home or the business that you bought in your own name. And then each year, you and your wife could gift the equivalent of $28,000 of, of ownership of that, you know, that real property whether it's a home or real estate or a business, you could gift that over to your daughter. So in a period of, you know, five to 15 years, depending upon what the purchase was, she could then maintain 100% ownership and there wouldn't be any tax consequences. This same logic applies with overall estate planning. And although it varies from state to state, uh, the majority of states, though, they either don't have an inheritance tax or it very much follows or uh, piggybacks on the federal exemptions for estate tax. So what most people don't realize is that federal inheritance taxes or estate taxes, they only kick in when the estate is in excess of over $5 million. And so in my opinion, unless your estate, you know, is somewhere up in that area of that 4 or $5 million, depending upon what state you live in, you may not have to worry about setting up a complicated trust for estates under $5 million. A lot of things can be handled with a standard will. And then even with estates over $5 million, you may find that life insurance provides a more effective means to limiting estate taxes than setting up a trust fund. In any case, with complicated matters like that, you need to speak to your attorney and your CPA. So let's wrap this up and get to the bottom line. So Jesse, what I'm suggesting to you is the best way for you to invest for your daughter's future is to invest in your own future and to then share those experiences with her as she grows and matures and as she's ready to accept those responsibilities. And so find the things that you know about. And things that you don't know about, you need to expand your knowledge. But you should be learning about how to invest in your own small business, how to invest in stocks, how to purchase real estate for rental income, or perhaps to invest in some large undeveloped land and start a homestead. And at the same time, as your daughter's talents and abilities are growing and she's maturing, your assets will be appreciating. And so they can grow together. And then so each year you can start handing over more and more the responsibility and the wealth that's generated from those investments over to your daughter. And then based on her talents and her passions, she can build on the foundation that you established. That's how real wealth is successfully passed from generation to generation. Well, Jesse, thank you for your question. If you'd like to hear about my commentary on the stock market or on general wealth building principles, then please check out the Wealth Setting Podcast. For the expert counsel, this is John Pugliano of Investable Wealth. Just to um, drive everything that John said home, because I too made the mistake of putting a substantial amount of money away for my son in a 529A plan. And uh, I, I, I can't tell you what a big mistake I thought that well, I think that was. And after he did complete two years of college, barely by the skin of his teeth, um, and actually had considered things like taking helicopter lessons and finding out he couldn't use his money for that, 
and he still has a sizable chunk of money sitting in a 529. Um, part of me feels like telling him, hey, you know what, kid? Take the, take the money to buy a house. Pay the interest and penalties it takes to withdraw it. And when you're ready to buy a house, just know that money's there and buy a freaking house with it. Wouldn't it be great if you didn't have to take the interest and penalties? Wouldn't it be great if we had just controlled that money, put it in a, a lockbox for him and said, this money is off limits. It's our asset, but even if it's just sitting in staggered CDs, it's for him. And he had complete control of that money with our guidance and could do anything that he wants to with it. Wouldn't that be better? That's what John's trying to say. So to drive that point home, here's what I want to point out to you. Let's say you had a, a child about 10 years old, and you've been saving money for that child, and you've been saving about $1,000 a year for that kid since it was born. So you have 10 grand for that kid. And uh, you, you decide you're going to let the kid have access to the money at 20. So you're going to have $20,000. And I say, you know what? Let me control that money for you, and I'll tell you what you can and can't do with it. All you have to do is sign this piece of paper, and I, Jacko, will control your money for you. I will tell you that you can't have it for certain reasons, and you can have it for other reasons, and I will mitigate your tax consequences by charging you fees, which you can then deduct as an expense, therefore uh, netting out to a zero tax sum against your money. Please give me control of your money. And even with this, you believe me. I'm not going to steal the money. I'm not going to take it away. I'm just going to have control over your money. Are you going to do it? Okay, if you wouldn't do it with me, don't do it with the state. I mean, how much more simple can I make that for you? If you wouldn't trust me with your kid's money and your kid's future and their choices and decisions, don't trust the state with it. Here's another thing. You don't know if your kid's going to be an asshole when they're 20 years old. You don't know your kid's going to qualify to get into college. I know we all want to believe, well, I'm going to work with them and I'm going to... You don't even know if college is going to be worth going to when your kid's 20. If your kid's 10 now, let alone two. Keep the money under your control. Don't sign away control of your money. And then you get to decide not the state, when and how much control to bequeath to your children. That's my thoughts. Anyway, next up, we haven't heard from the Duke of Permaculture, Paul Wheaton, on what's going on with Wheaton Labs uh, for quite a while. So here we go with a big update from Paul. I think he went 19 seconds over his 10 minutes, uh, but I'm going to let it go because this one's packed with information. Paul, what's going on in the wilds of northwest Montana? Hi, Jack. This is Paul Wheaton and Jocelyn Campbell from permies.com with another update from Wheaton Labs. We've got 10 minutes, and we're going to try and squeeze it all in. <laughs> First of all, melons. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> we've, we've got, we've, I think we've grown more melons than we can actually eat. And, and I think growing melons in Montana, not everybody can do it. And we kind of even just half-assed did it. And we just planted some seeds here and there, and now we got melons. Of course, we've got all kinds of food still pumping out of the ground. And this is kind of a, a year where things didn't work very well. Yeah. And, and so I think next year it'll be, um, I don't know, what worse or better. <laughs> well, and of course they like the compost pile, um, and that's where they seem to grow the best. And we don't typically have compost piles, but we do to heat the hot water for our skittable showers. So we stuck a couple seeds in there. <laughs> yeah. And they they <laughs> love that they love that heat. Yeah. And and we hit our first frost of the year and uh mm -hmm. we saw steam coming off that compost pile. We're gearing up for the Rocket Mass Heater Innovators event. The first innovator arrives tomorrow. Uh that would be uh Tim Barker. He used to be a land manager for Jeff Lawton. 
Um, last year, he made the Cocket Locket Rocket, which is a sort of wood cook stove using rocket stuff, uh-huh. rocket technology, uh, so more efficient. But it's also got a – not only does it have a cook stove, a cooking surface, but it also has an oven and a water heater. I um, know. I think this year he's focusing on uh, making uh, rocket stuff for heating a tiny house. Yeah. So um, <clears throat> We're excited to have Tim back. Uh-uh. <laughs> All the innovators. Yeah. Okay. We got the so next item on the list is uh, we dropped the price of the Rocket Mass Heater four DVD set to twenty nine fifty for a digital download. So that's four videos for twenty nine fifty at scubly dot com. And when it comes to residual income streams, I'm sorry, scubly dot com is now my favorite thing in the world because mm-hmm. <laughs> because you you get it set up and then your uh, PayPal account just gets fatter every month with zero effort. And I think that's the the definition of a residual income stream. Um, the Ant Village Challenge has been extended one year. I think I could probably talk for an hour on this. But uh, the, the key is is that um, uh, rather than having things done in uh, where we're going to look at everything and on September 10th, 2016, we're going to do it on September 10th, 2017. We've shifted the prices around a little bit. so And we have four spots left for ants. So if somebody wanted to come and be part of the Ant Village Challenge, they could. A lot of progress at Ant Village. Yeah. Well, the thing that excites me is two of the guys have actually enticed women to come stay with them. <laughs> and so I am not suffering with, you know, eight guys year-round talking about melons and things like that. <laughs> right? Well, construction. You, you, I know yeah. you get your, your yeah. eyes glaze over when it's like, and now how are we going to build this thing? And right. We're going to build that thing. And we're going to build a road and we're going to build a, build some hugel culture, build a, build yeah. a, build a, build a. It's been two years of lots of guys like that. And now there's two women. <laughs> We've had women off and on, but um, these gals might be here a while. Yeah. Woohoo! Yeah, such a such a difference. All right. Uh, the next thing is is that there's still tickets for the Rocket Mass Heater Innovators event. Um, uh, the We've got two different events. The the three day event starts in about five days, so it starts on Wednesday of this upcoming week. And then the next uh, five-day event, the, the official innovators event, because the first event is kind of a show-and-tell where, where potential innovators can come and show what they've made and tinker and things like that. We call it the Tinkerer Circus. Then there's the five-day event, uh, which is a little over a week away, like a week and a half away, uh, and that's the five-day event. Um, and so that one's going to be where all six innovators each have their thing that they're going to work on. We have spent, I think, about six or $7,000 just on materials uh, for all the innovations they're going to do while they're here. Uh, permaculture Playing Cards reprint. If people are signed up for my daily-ish email, we'll be sending out an email sometime in the next few days that says, ready, go. And you'll have 48 hours to get the best deal that we're going to offer this year. We're getting a total reprint. And um, we're hope and and the price per deck would be something like 5 bucks a deck. But you got to buy like 12. And that's that's the thing is with the cards is that this is a way for <laughs> people who are bonkers about permaculture to uh, uh, use that use that Christmas time excuse to give gifts. <laughs> and And here, here's a gift for you. And then if they actually look at it, maybe you seem less crazy. <laughs> and so that's that's the design of the cards is to be given so you seem less crazy. Yeah. So uh, I think we're setting it up so it's going to be something like uh, 
60 bucks for uh, 12 decks, uh, something like that. But that's on the dailyish. You got to be on the dailyish to get that deal. Um, so that's coming up next. Um, we got jobs. Yeah. Um, for 2016, we have three positions. Not only are they uh, full time, full pay, but we are working on getting them to be professional pay. In fact, for each of them, I think each of them can hit a hundred thousand dollars a year the first year. Um, and I've written, I could probably talk for eight hours about my philosophies and professionalism. Um, and of course, professionalism is the core to getting professional pay. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's what we're talking about is professional pay. Well, and, and your setup is unique in that it's more partnerships where these people can create their own entrepreneurial uh, easy for me to say, situation where it's kind of in partnership with Wheaton Labs and you, and um, they can really make that job and that income sing. With the listings out at permies.com, I've got a link to a thread where I talk about the difference between mm-hmm. what do you want me to do now and somebody who actually like knows how to get it, you know, and is good. And I and I think you know we're putting a lot of money into getting these positions started. So we'll we'll provide some seed money so a person can get started. But it's like okay. And the three ones are permaculture teacher, resort manager, and natural builder. Right. So we want we need a full time permaculture teacher here. Somebody we've got a program we call Pep One, and we want to get the Pep One fleshed out, started, and happening. Um, and the resort manager is going to be more like um, let's. I mean we. we Renting out the spaces that we have all year long. I mean, I think a lot of people would love to come and stay in the teepee with the rocket mass heater, experience the luxuriant comfort that comes with an uninsulated space, especially in the wintertime. Right. Um, and then, of course, Natural Builder. We just have oodles of projects going on, and we even have more people that are kind of talking about, like, they'll pay a Natural Builder to build some things here. Next item, Jesse's videos. So we've got a, one of our aunts here has been taking oodles of videos. The way he narrates it is awesome. Um, he's been doing great. And not only that, but he set up a Patreon thing. So it's like this guy is making good money just making videos. Yeah. Uh, and that's part of the reason we need natural builders and other stuff, you know, because he doesn't need the bounty work here as much. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, yeah. Free cycles. We there's a there's a cool thing in Missoula, and I imagine there might be some some other places in the world. But in Missoula, Montana, if you want a bike, you get a bike. Everybody in Missoula gets a free bike. <laughs> and um, awesome. And, and, and what a great way to reuse old junky bikes. They have fifteen thousand broken bicycles that they are perpetually repairing. And um, and we worked out a deal with them, and now we get. 10 free bikes because we just helped them with the fundraiser. Yeah. That was an exciting thing. Uh, we get we get to have 10 bicycles and they're going to build us a shop complete with tools and parts because yeah. we helped them out with that. I love the power I have. <laughs> and you like it that they're a true nonprofit under your definitions. I so, generally yeah. don't like nonprofits mm-hmm. and I've written extensively about how they make me angry, but yeah. this is I mean these guys are operating on peanuts every yeah. month and and so it's like no one's getting rich over there and the service is amazing. It's a fantastic community connection and it enables a bunch of our people who come here without cars to travel the 2 miles between base camp and the lab on a bike. It's way easier that way. We got a, a new guy here. Uh, he's a gapper, uh, not an ant. So gapper is goofy about permaculture. Um, they're, you know, here they're like our equivalent of woofer sort of kind of a little bit yeah. but not really. Um, and and uh, he's a construction dude and so he's picked up the Allerton Abbey project. 
He's been doing stuff with Cobb and Straw Bale. Um, and uh, just a couple of days ago, we came up with a whole new technique to get that cob between the logs at Allard and Abbey. And uh, I'm, I'm going to claim that I'm the inventor, and I call it the jabby-jabby technique. <laughs> <laughs> so you have a, you have a one-inch hole, and then you get your cob placed in front of it, and you got a stick to jab it in there. <laughs> and then you cover the hole afterwards. So... Um, the second excavator shows up today. Uh, we've got a bunch of um, excavator work to get done. And uh, and so we'll have one at the lab and one at base camp for a week. And so material will be able to be moved uh, between the two. Um, plus, you know, we don't have to – when you take an excavator down a paved road, um, usually it leaves a trail of – you know, leading right to who destroyed the road. <laughs> so, so we've got some stuff to do at base camp. We're going to be taking care of that. I, and then that's another, you know, half an hour of discussion there. Um, that's it. I think we get it. We got squeezed. Oh, no, we ran over. Quick, wrap up. Bye, Jack. <laughs> Bye. Okay, I'm going to actually take a question this week for myself from one of the gun questions that was written in instead of called in for yesterday's show because it's a simple question uh, that I have a pretty in-depth answer for that I think a lot of people might be interested in. And it's a very simple question from Matthew. And it says, Jack, what is your ideal Ruger 1022 setup? Um, note my ideal, not your ideal, not the ideal. What is my ideal? So I'm going to preface this with saying, what do I use a Ruger 10-22 for? And I use it for small game hunting, uh, pest control, and target shooting. That's what I use it for. I use it for all three of those things. And I use it when I pick up my little Ruger versus my old Marlin Model 25, which I've had since I was 13 years old, uh, bolt-action, seven-round magazine uh, rifle that I love dearly because I've had it for that long. That's a gun that definitely will be passed on to a grandson or granddaughter or uh, trusted niece or nephew someday when I'm an old man. Uh, but from a 10-22 standpoint, I mean, the reason I preface this with my ideal setup if you want to do a lot of target shooting and attend a lot of apple seed events, you could do a lot worse than to configure your 1022 as close to an M1 carbine as possible with a rear, uh, you know, a rear sight uh, all the way back by the eye with a peep sight and, and what have you, and barrel band and leave or leave the original stock on it or, or what have you of the, the street model. Um, if you just want to shoot a lot and plink a lot, you could do a lot worse than a couple hundred bucks street price or under for a stock 1022 and leaving it the hell alone. So, again, it's all about what you want to do. But for me, as, as a dedicated hunting rifle, because I love to hunt squirrels and rabbits. Uh, in fact, it's like the only thing I get time to do anymore as far as hunting goes is to hunt squirrels and rabbits and maybe doves. Uh, then I want things done a little bit differently. I want to be able to pick my rifle up. I want to be able to spend a day in the bush. I don't want to carry anything other than a knife and the things I basically would carry if I wasn't hunting and just taking a walk in the woods. I want the rifle to have everything that I need with it. Um, minus maybe a cleaning kit, because I'm not cleaning a 22 in the field. I usually carry in my, my hunting kit at least a rod uh, and a couple little tools so I can extract a shell that really gets stuck or something by dropping a piece of cleaning rod down the barrel or something. But if you take care of your gun, that's not going to happen. So I'm, I'm holding my little Ruger as I talk about this. So the first thing I did when I decided I wanted a 10-22 as a hunting rifle was I took a look at the stock on it, the plain Jane stock on it, said I'd like something a little bit nicer. And uh, you can buy a custom stock. I will put a link in the show notes. It's from, made by Ruger. It's kind of a step up, or you can buy the rifle with that stock. I based my stock on that stock, but I actually hand-built my own stock. And it's hand-finished by me, and it's uh, 
it's really nice. I wanted to learn checkering. I taught myself how to checker. Uh, I did the mounting of the, uh, I used the Ruger uh, rubber uh, butt plate that they use on their custom stock and learned how to do all that stuff and mount them all in slings, wibbles, too, and all. Was it worth it? No. Other than I can say I did it. Uh, I think that just buying the gun already configured with the stock or getting uh, the walnut checkered stock is a good way to go. It's not all about looks. The checkering is is a lot uh, a lot of advantage when you're actually hunting with the rifle from a tactile feel and not slipping. Um, the the foreend of that stock and and the one that I built like it is a little bit flatter. It fits in the hand a little bit nicer. The rubber butt plate feels really nice against the shoulder. It gives you a good firm grip. Uh, but that is really neither here nor there. It's up to you. But I will put a link where you can find the stock today. Accessories on it are all also made by Ruger. I have a um, a Ruger sling for it, uh, which is designed for the 10-22. It's a nice wide flat sling. Carries really nice. It's got a com- uh, a, a built-in uh, compartment on it that holds a 10-round magazine for it. So my sling alone holds 10 rounds. I then purchased a belt magazine holder that holds two loaded mag or two magazines could be loaded or unloaded. This designed to be worn on the belt. I place this on the sling itself so that they are configured where they sit down by the bottom of the stock. And, and I'll put a picture of this or a short video of this up today too for you guys, uh, so you can, it makes more sense. But basically, I just took the sling and ran it through the belt loop of that, so they're way at the bottom. So right where the the bottom sling swivel is, back by your cheek. If you're, if you're shouldering the rifle, there is that two-pack of magazines, which means with a magazine in the magazine well, one on the pocket on the sling, and two in there, I have four loaded magazines. That's 40 rounds. Um, a day of target shooting with a 22, no. A day of hunting with a 22, 40 rounds is all you need, man. I mean, that's way more than you need. So I can pick this rifle up, configured that way, and hit the, hit the bricks with it, so to speak. I did put a scope on it. The scope that I have on it, Costs damn near as much as the rifle itself. It's a hard pill to swallow, I think, for some people to put a piece of glass on a rifle that costs as much as the rifle or more sometimes. Um, but I'm a big, I'm a big fan of fixed power scopes for a 22. Four power, four power fixed power scope is my go-to for inexpensively configuring a 22. With this, I wanted a little more fl- flexibility. It's not really that I want the rifle to have greater than four power magnification. I want it to have less. So the scope that I went with is a Redfield Revolution 2 to 7 by 33 rifle scope uh, in matte finish variety, uh, fourplex uh, rectangle. Uh, I, I really love this scope. It has the clarity of like a $500 loophole, in my opinion. If, if you can have a scope be clearer, my eyes aren't good enough to see the difference. The fact that I can crank the magnification down to two power uh, when hunting squirrels where you're often pretty close to them looking for them in the trees, to me, is more advantageous than, let's say, see-through mounts. I don't like see-through mounts because you have to bring your head too much up for the scope. I have a low-profile single-base scope mount don't remember who makes it, probably either Redfield, uh, and I bought it from them when I bought the scope, or I would say Weaver would be the other likely candidate for it, but just a good low-profile single base mount. What I mean by that is the base that, that bolts to the top of the 1022 is a single base with two top rings that hold the scope in place, and that's it. That's pretty much, that's, that's it. It's not got a bunch of accessories on it. It's not configured with a bunch of stuff. Good quality, low-magnification scope, 
that does, yes, adjust up to seven power. The ability to carry three magazines on it at all times, four if there's one in the well, with nothing on my belt weighing me down, um, and a nice stock that gives me a good, solid grip uh, when I'm in the, in the bush and I've got you know wet, sticky things like that. One thing I may actually do is integrate into the sling at some point a way to carry a small knife uh, integrated right into the sling because I think that would be a great thing and it wouldn't really cause any bulk or disturbance and that would be about it. But again, this is because I like to eat bushy tails and I like to eat cotton tails. I mean, that's, that's what this rifle's for. So it's my ideal configuration and I think that in the gun world, we get too caught up on what's perfect, what's what's the best of this or the best of that, or what accessories should you put on your gun. Well, here's what I think. Um, I think you should put on your weapon or your rifle or your handgun configuration or anything, the things that make sense for the way that you're going to use it, not the things that make it cool or awesome or create gun envy in your buddies or something like that. Uh, my little 1022 doesn't... Doesn't turn a lot of heads, other than when people pick it up, they think that's a nice little gun. Um, but I'll tell you what, it'll knock the eyeballs out of a bushy tail at 50 yards if you do your part. That's what I'm looking for in it, and I want it to be comfortable to carry. I want it to be fully equipped. That's why it's my ideal setup. Let's go ahead now and take another one. Oh, wait, real quick, I wanted to give you an option uh, for a scope that won't cost $180. Bucks. Um the lowest price scope that I'm comfortable recommending is made by Simmons. Uh, that Model 25 Marlin, that old gun, I have one on it. Uh, I had a beautiful little weaver that was like from the 1950s on it that finally crapped out after all those years. And I had this scope laying around. I put it on there. I was living in Arkansas when I put it on there, and it's it's hold zero to this day. That gun will still drive a, a dime uh, out of existence at 25 yards. Uh, and this scope sells for 30 to 40 bucks. Simmons 22 mag rimfire rifle scope, a 4x32 Truplux rectangle. It comes with rings. They're fine for the purpose. You really don't need to upgrade the rings. Um, and again, it's a fixed four power and a matte black finish. I'll have links to both of those scopes today. Uh, the, the magazine, uh, pouch. Uh, the, the, the sling with the magazine pouch and the stock that I based my uh, custom build on that you can buy stock from Ruger. I'll have all of that for you in the show notes. Now let's go ahead and uh, take that next question. This one, a short and seat one for uh, Stephen Harris. It says, is it safe to recharge the Walt 18-volt power tool battery packs off a of Stephen Harris mobile battery pack of system? Thanks to Harris, I now have a killer battery bank in my pickup toolbox for Trojan 125 6-volt batteries wired in series parallel with a Whistler Pro 2000-watt inverter. Yes, even though they are discontinued, I scored a new one off eBay at a good price. But Whistler's owner manual says, Important information on battery chargers. Using your inverter with battery chargers for power tools, flashlights, video cameras, laptop computers may cause damage to the inverter or charging unit. Check with the appliance manufacturer for compatibility with modified sine wave inverters if you're unsure. Okay, anyway, I am going to go ahead and turn this now over to Mr. Stephen Harris, and I imagine you can sort of imagine for yourself what he's going to do with this. Hi, this is Steve Harris with the Expert Panel calling in to answer your question. This is a very good question. And thank you for emailing it in. I'm sure it's, this question is on the minds of probably over a thousand people listening to the show right now who have also read their manuals. Here is what I learned about manuals when I worked at Chrysler Corporation. 
The manual is the Bible by which you get sued. If something happens to a vehicle and it goes blah and the guy goes and gets an ambulance chasing lawyer, they take the person, to, they take everyone to court. They put the guy on the stand or the corporation on the stand and they say, it says right here in the manual that blah, 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 blah. And you can do blah with this. And our client did blah with it, like you said, and his vehicle caught on fire. Well, that's what man, you know, that's what manuals are used for. They are basically legal documents. And of course, Whistler, who is an excellent manufacturer of inverters and one of my favorites, which you can find on battery1234.com, they will say in their manual, check with the appliance manufacturer for compatibility with modified sine wave inverters if you are unsure. So, of course, they're going to say that. It's their lawyer speaking. Of course, DeWalt is going to say, we recommend using a pure sine wave inverter with our DeWalt and chart, with our DeWalt chargers. All modified sine wave inverters are not created equal. Of course, they're going to say that. Because let's say there, let's say there was a DeWalt charger and it was becoming faulty. And even plugged into the wall, it was going to overheat and stop working. And you plugged it into your modified sine wave inverter and it, oh, it stopped working. You're going to, what are you going to do? You're going to blame the modified sine wave inverter. This is what I call blaming the witch. You know, you know, my horse got sick. It's the witch's fault. My cow died. It's the witch's fault. I plugged it into my modified sine wave inverter. It's the modified sine wave inverter's fault. So, of course, you're going to say this. Now, here's generally what's going to happen. Generally, when you plug in a laptop and or a charger for a battery for a power tool or something, it's it's going to work right away or it's not. Ten minutes is not needed. And I'm telling you from my life experience of over... 25 years of dealing with inverters, all the way back to the first ones that came out in the, at the consumer level. I remember it was 300 bucks for a 300 watt inverter. And we used them in the vehicles at, at Chrysler to keep our laptops powered. 99 times out of 100, it's going to work right away. And you're going to be just fine. But if you want to wait 10 minutes and feel if it's warm, go ahead. Nothing wrong with double checking. And oh, for the record, electronics love running off modified sine wave inverters. They say, oh, your LCD TV won't work off of the modified sine wave inverter and the, your laptop won't. All these devices are doing, the, all these devices run off of DC. And what they do is they convert AC to DC and they really don't care if it's modified sine wave or sine wave. It's going to convert the AC to DC, then everything in the device is running by DC. This is especially true with a laptop with an external power supply. It's converting it and feeding it to the laptop. It's not that sensitive. You know, if you called up any tool maker, if you called up anyone who has anything that plugs in the wall, and you said, will your light bulb work with a modified sine wave inverter, they would recommend, no, no, don't do that, no. You got to... Well, it'll work with a pure sine wave inverter. 
Well, we probably don't recommend you using it with any inverter. Will it work with my generator? No, no, it's probably not a good idea. It's only, you know, if it's only use it when the power is on. No, that's going to be the standard answer from any company. And any inverter company is going to say, well, check with the manufacturer of your device to see if it's compatible with modified sine wave. So that's what's going to happen, guys. Anyways, that's a short story. My name is Stephen Harris. You can get all of the great stuff I have done with Jack, along with some bunch of wonderful true stories. It's Stephen, S-T-E-V-E-N, 1234.com. Thanks, guys. Talk to you in two weeks. He was actually a lot kinder than I expected when I sent him that question, but I've been charging DeWalt tool uh, batteries uh, since we put mine in my truck with no problems whatsoever uh, with both the 3,000-watt uh, inverter and the 850-watt backup inverter. I've charged my tools with my battery bank in my closet just to see how it worked, and I, I've never had a problem. I, I think that this is one of those things that... Too many people like to talk and sound smart, so uh, bullshit gets propagated. I've seen more bullshit propagated uh, in the last five years on the Internet than the first five years on the Internet. I can tell you that. The, the incidence of bullshit on the Internet is increasing at, I think, approaching the speed of light, especially on Facebook and other social media platforms. Always check your bullshit before you repost your bullshit, ladies and gentlemen. But this was a good question because this is straight out of the owner's manual. But Steve gave you a good breakdown there of why the owner's manual is written the way it is. It's about, think of it like this, defensive medicine. We'll order all the tests so we can't get sued for malpractice. That's how to think of manuals today. you got to put some common sense in there as well. With that, let's go ahead and take the next question. This question is for Brian Black in regards to uh, home security and doggy doors. Brian, what do you say on this? Hey, TSC. This is Brian Black from ITS Basketball to answer another expert counsel question. Um, this one comes from, I don't have a name on it, but it says that there is there a way to make a large exterior dog door secure in a very secure home? Uh, the details are my wife and I are building a geodesic dome home with hurricane-proof windows and doors. The steel doors will all have security hinges and multiple European locks. We have two German shepherds, 80 and 110 pounds, that at times need to go out in the middle of the night. We're considering installing two dog doors, one from the house to the garage and one from the garage to a fence in the yard, perhaps exiting from the dog house that hides the door to the outside. The dog door to the outside would have a collar-activated lock. Is this too great of a security risk for a home that is otherwise extremely secure? Oh, Frank. Okay. So, hey, Frank. So the answer to your question, in my opinion, I would dissuade you from installing dog doors. Even though they do have a collar-activated lock, um, you still got a large hole that's there cut inside your door that leads from the exterior of your home to the interior. So um, I would discourage you from doing that. Um, while it's great to... To have that feature, you know, when the dog goes out, then you, then you've got a, you know, technically an open portal to your home that someone could hold open, um, as your dog goes out. You know, of course, I know you have German Shepherds and they probably, um, attack whoever was there, but at the same time, you know, why risk it? I think it would be better to just kind of be on the alert when you need to let them out and just, you know, open the door and possibly install some security cameras outside to help you see before you open the door that type of thing. Um, and I would also kind of caution you against the European locks. While European locks are great, not a lot of people in the U.S. know how to pick those. Uh, at the same time, I would more steer you into the direction of like a, 
a multi-lock um, or a Medco. Um, I prefer multi-lock over Medco. I think they're they're more secure in my opinion. Um, but however, those are just uh, a couple of considerations for your question. So hopefully I shed some light on that, and I appreciate the question. Um, keep them coming. Remember to check out ITS for your daily dose of skill sets and resources to help explore your world and prevail against all threats. www.itstasco.com. Thanks a lot. Good answer, and whenever it's a lot question, I'm going to defer to Brian. On uh, the dog thing, I think I have an addition for you. First of all, I agree with Brian. Uh, it's one of those things I've struggled with a lot. I think it'd be very nice if I never dealt with a cold, wet nose pressed against my face in the middle of the night or the sound of, woo, uh, at the door, which is basically, hey, dude, you taught me to do this, and if you don't let me out, I'm going to crap in the house, and it's your fault because you taught me that I'm supposed to ask to go out. Um. I would like to talk about how I deal with it and what I've done to try to mitigate it, and I probably need to start uh, some training sessions with Max again and, and follow a little bit of my own advice here as well. So Charlie sleeps through the night. I have to wake him up in the mornings, usually have to drag him off my couch where he doesn't belong to get him to go out the door. Max has taken to at least one or two nights a week this whole I need to go out at 3 o'clock in the morning thing. A lot of times when I get up to let Max out, Charlie goes with Max. Here's my rule. I have my yard configured so that my dogs can be in it without my supervision. So if my dogs want to go out at 3 o'clock in the morning, they get to come back in about 7 o'clock in the morning. I'm not going to stand around for 10 minutes asking my dogs to finish their business and come back in. They just volunteered to provide security for the property for the rest of the night. That makes it a lot easier because it's one trip to the door and immediately back to bed, and I'm on with you know my life. Now, here's the thing. Um, I might have to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night myself. If I'm going to get up anyway, I'm going to go to the bathroom. Okay? If you go take a long car drive, what do you do? You know you're going to be in the car for a long time unless you're a woman that wants to take a pee stop every 15 minutes because uh, it's amazing how fast men can get somewhere unenc unencumbered by the female bladder. Uh, what do you do? You take a leak before you leave, and maybe you give it the old Chicago try for the number two as well so that you've got yourself emptied out so you can spend more time in the car and less time in disgusting rest stops and uh, uh, restaurant bathrooms and you know convenience store bathrooms and stuff like that. You try to get to where you're going if you can at all possible. So what we can do is begin to put this thinking into our dogs with our own conditioning slash programming of our animals. So the first thing to do is once your dogs have had dinner and they've eaten their fill for dinner, if there's leftover food, pick the food up. They do not need to eat again until morning. If you decide to give them a biscuit or something like that or a chew, you've done that. You deal with the consequences. Okay. If you're going to give your dogs anything outside of the realm of typical, their, their normal diet, like a treat uh, from the dinner table or something like that, put it in the refrigerator and give it to them in the morning. And then put them out immediately and put them out during the day. Do not give it to them in the evening when it's going to disrupt their normal dietary and bathroom habits. So I'm not one of these people, never feed your dog people food. What is people food? Okay, what is, what exactly makes some food? Because do you eat the dog food, right? Is, is is dog food somehow superior to people food? If not, why are you not eating it? It's superior to dogs for dogs. No, meat is superior. Meat and fat and bone and cartilage is good for dogs. So when I say I don't feed my dogs people food, I mean things like I don't feed them granola because you really probably shouldn't. People shouldn't be eating that either. The stuff that's not good for you uh, that your dogs will eat, they probably shouldn't have. The stuff that is good for you that your dogs will willing to eat, they probably should have. But if you give dogs a lot of fat, especially cooked fat in the evening, they're going to have to crap in the middle of the night. 
So just move any feedings like that till morning. Uh, if you work and you are going to have the dog inside all day, hold it for weekend mornings. Got it? When you're going to be home and can let them out, feed them that stuff in the morning. It's a good way to get rid of it. Next, um, like I said, at the end of the day, take their food up. I leave my dogs with water, but what you can do to mitigate the peeing is about 8.30, 9 o'clock at night, take the water up. Your dog can go from 8 o'clock at night to 8 o'clock in the morning without water if he's inside. Now, if he's outside in the heat, he should have access to water 24-7, 365. You're responsible for that because it's your dog. But in the house, 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock, you're going to be up at 7, take the dog's water away. Number three, put the dog out to pee and poo in the evening. Number four, train your dog to pee and poo on command. This sounds complicated. It's not. What you do is you start working with your dog. And whenever your dog's naturally going to do something you want them to do, give them a command to do it while they're doing it. So when you see your dog pee, say pee. Or take a piss. Or however you want to say it. Go number one. However you feel. right? Whatever you think is the right words for that. And when you see him go to the bathroom, I tell my dogs, go poo. right? So as soon as I see him squat and that butt puckers, I say, go poo. I'm doing it anyway, jerk. But if you keep doing that, it's like Pavlov's dog. You ring the bell, you feed the dog, the dog salivates every time the bell rings, right? So when you say poo, the dog kind of like, oh, I got to go. So if you do that, you can literally train a dog to take a dump on command. What if he doesn't have to go? Well, if you can't go, you won't. But that means the dog's empty. And what that means is you can put your dog out in the evening and say, go poo. If the dog won't poo, you say, go poo. The dog eventually will go. If he can't go, if he tries and nothing comes out, trust your dog. Tell him to go pee. Make him go before you go to bed. And I generally put them out around 8 o'clock, and we usually go to bed around 10. And I'll, I'll, go, I'll make them go out with a command at night. Go pee. If the dog goes out, mills around, sniffs a few things, comes back to the door. No, go pee. At least you're going to pee. If you do that, the whole getting up in the middle of the night thing gets mitigated a great deal. So... Instead of addressing the problem from a standpoint the dog has to pee in the middle of the night, how does the dog get out to pee? How do we keep the dog from having to pee in the middle of the night? Same way you do. Empty the bladder before bed. Okay? Those are my thoughts on that. Um, and then the other side, like I said, if my dog does break protocol and he wants to go out at 3 o'clock in the morning, hey, Max, see you at 7, 7.30, buddy. Uh, let's go ahead and take, I have one more question today. This one for Nick Ferguson, and this is on plant propagation with a misting bed. Question is, I live in central Florida. I want to start a small propagation bed on my carport uh, for goji, blueberry, and blackberry. Research that I've done recommends coarse sand. All I've been able to find is play builder sand at Lowe's. It seems similar to me, but very fine material. Any help would be appreciated. Thanks, Tyson. So, Nick, what do we do to set up our propagation beds when we can't actually get coarse sand or what we would call sharp sand? Because a lot of us, we do have that problem. All the sand we can get is like fine sugar sand, and I know that creates problems. So how do we mitigate that, Mr. Ferguson? Hey there, Nick Ferguson calling in to answer Tyson's question about his propagation bed. So all he can find is play sand or builder sand. That is just fine, Tyson. The only other thing that you need to find is some perlite. I would look at a, uh, a feed store or a bigger nursery, and what you're looking for probably is going to be something along the lines of a four-cubic-foot bag of perlite, and you should be able to get those for around 20 bucks or so. Don't buy the, like, 
two quart bag of perlite at at Home Depot or Lowe's. It's a awful value. Look for the big bag because you're probably going to need quite a bit of it. And all I would do is mix your perlite and your sand 50-50 and you should be good to go. Super simple. Easy, man. So once you get that mixed up, you should be good to go, man. Good luck on all of your plant propagation. It sure is fun. For more information about me, check out permacultureclassroom.com. Y'all have a great weekend. Just a real quick addition there as to why that's important. If you use sugar sand, as I call it, or place sand, or uh, the sand that you get at Home Depot in sacks or what have you, or in my case, the sand I get from a materials company, uh, they call it cushion sand. Um, it's so fine that when you're misting with it over and over and over again to try to propagate softwood cuttings, um, it becomes waterlogged and it won't drain. And since it won't drain, what ends up happening is before your plants can actually put roots on and start to develop into new plant your cuttings and start to develop into actual plants, they rot. So you need to increase the drainage. And perlite is exactly what I use because Nick gave me the exact same advice he just gave you. So there you go. A little addition on that, what I learned from Nick, is don't buy potting soil. Buy like a yard of compost, okay? Um, buy a great big bag or two of perlite and buy a bale of peat moss and mix all that together. And you get potting soil for so much cheaper than buying it by the bag. And you end up with, a, when you when you put in a couple big sacks of perlite, which I get for about 20 bucks at my feed store, just like Nick said, and like one big uncompressed, once you uncompress a big bale of peat moss, you end up with almost two yards of potting mix. And I've got 25 bucks in the compost, 40 bucks in the uh, perlite for two bags of it, and maybe 20 bucks in it from the thing. So about 100 bucks, and you two yards Versus what, like nine, ten bucks for a little bag? Um, you know, if you don't need that much, buy a little bag. But if you're doing a lot of propagation and plant starting, you can't afford to buy it by the bag. That's the way to do that. So a little, uh, little uh, hat or a little, what do you call it? A little, uh, little assist for Nick there on the end of that one because I know he was in short time when he uh, called this one in from the road, and I knew he would have added that if he was sitting at a desk or something. So Nick's always got great answers for us, like all the expert council members do. Remember to submit a question for an expert council member for a show like this. Email, don't call, email your question in to jackatthesurvivalpodcast.com, TSP expert in the subject line. Please name your expert, first and last name. It will be more likely that when I'm searching for questions using Outlook search feature, I'll find it than if you just say, send it to the expert of your choice. Who do you want to hear from? If you don't know who the experts are, they're all listed in every expert council show or go under about at the survivalpodcast.com, you'll see a link to meet the expert council with a full rundown on all of them. And I might be bringing you a new expert council member very, very soon. And uh, one very well-known expert council member may be going on injured reserve because I guess his travels are keeping him from responding. Haven't had an answer from Jeff Lawton uh, in over a month. And uh, I might just have to make room. I don't want to put Jeff on injured reserve, but... I just say this, if it can happen to Jeff, it can happen to anybody if you're out there listening, folks. Anyway, with that, I want to go ahead and uh, wrap up today, and it's a weekend, and I want to leave you with some words of advice and some thoughts and tie that into the music that we'll conclude today's show with. This is kind of a fun, bouncy, 
song. It's not really, really deep, but yet it has this huge, deep meaning to it. It's from one of my favorite singer-songwriters, Jimmy Buffett. I am a parrot head, as many of you know. That's an older song. It's off the album. I guess all of Jimmy's music at this point are older songs. It's off the album Coconut Telegraph. It's called It's My Job. And uh, it starts out talking about a sweet streeper, a sweet, a sweet, a street sweeper. Uh, and it also talks about his uncle, who's a self-made millionaire, and how he feels doing his job, which is playing for crowds. And I think this is a message for all of you out there. And I think people could take this the wrong way because you hear the beginning, the sweet, the, the street sweeper is very, very happy with his job because it's his job. And you can take that to mean that you should be happy in your job. I, I don't think that's the meaning of this song. I think Jimmy's a little bit deeper than that. And because he talks about how his uncle has a job that actually is a job that people would think you'd want to have, a job that makes you a millionaire, but it makes him freaking miserable because that's what people expect from me. That's what people expect from me. That's what people expect from me, is to be miserable. And when you find your work that's meaningful, then no matter what people expect from you, no matter what people expect from me, from you, you're happy. Your meaningful work, your life's work. And I think all of us should be on a quest to find the work that we love And then figure out how to make that pay our bills. Versus the other way around. Finding something that pays our bills and then trying to figure out how to love it. Imagine if you took that approach with your wife or your husband, ladies, right? So you look out and you find somebody, you go, okay, well, this, this, this partner on a balance sheet matches well. We'll have a good, secure financial life. Uh, the genetics are there to have a couple kids that are going to be normal. Uh, there's a basic fit. But... I have no feelings or emotions for this person at all. In fact, maybe I'm a little bit turned off by them, but I'm going to fake it till we make it. So I'm going to find something that pays the bills from a relationship ma uh, manifesto, and then I'm going to try to fall in love with this person. That doesn't sound like a good idea, does it? Why do we, why do we take something that, that's so, so much less of, of who we are and make it more of who we are with our work? Because we've been conditioned to believe that. You just need to find a job that pays the bills, Billy. Well, maybe Billy does. But as soon as you're paying the bills, you need to start saying to yourself, okay, I can take care of myself now. What do I really want to do with my life? Use that stability of that first or second or third job or however many it is for you to go out and find what you love and stop believing liars that tell you, well, that's nice. That's nice, but you can't make a living doing that. We have people making a living doing every single thing you can conceive of in the world. And the person that tells you you can't do it is wrong. They're right for themselves. They can't do it. And because they can't figure out how to do it, misery loves company. They want to pull you down. They want you to do what people like them expect of you. What I want you to do is what I expect of you. I expect of you to live life to the fullest, to find the work that you love, and to be able to prove those people wrong. You can be like the street sweeper, you can be like the miserable millionaire, or you can be like Mr. Buffett, who realizes doing what you love ends up creating the joy of the, of the, of the street sweeper 
and the wealth of the self-made millionaire. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. In the middle of late last night I was sitting on a curb I didn't know what about but I was feeling quite disturbed A street sweeper came a-whistling by He was bouncing every step It seemed strange how good he felt So I asked him while he swept He said, it's my job to be cleaning up this mess And that's enough reason to go for me It's my job to be better than the rest And that makes a day for me I got an uncle who owns a bank He's a self-made millionaire He never had anyone to love Never had no one to care He always seemed kind of sad to me And I asked him why that was And he told me it's because In my contract there's this clause That says it's my job To be worried half to death And that's the thing people respect in me It's my job But without it I'd be less Than what I expect from me Most all my life Writing songs and sleeping late And any manual labor I've done Was purely by mistake If street sweepers can smile Then I've got no right to feel upset But sometimes I still forget Till the lights go on And the stage is set And the song is home And you feel that sweat It's my job To be different than the rest And that's enough a reason To go for me It's my job To be better than the rest And that's a rough break for me It's my job To be cleaning up this mess And that's enough a reason To go for me It's my job